This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast, where we talk with people who in some way, shape, or form have been influenced by the outdoors. I'm Andy, the producer of this podcast, and my lovely wife, Sarah, will be your host. Together, we make up Hiking Through Life. This podcast is all about bringing all kinds of people who are inspired by the outdoors and sharing their stories. We hope that by sharing people's stories, it inspires others to get out and live a more meaningful life. Tune in every week for new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Hiking Through Life podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Also, if you have a story to share or know of anyone who might be interested in being a guest on this podcast, head on over to hikingthroughlife.net slash podcast and get in touch with us. If you'd like to support Hiking Through Life, you can go to hikingthroughlife.net slash shop. We have t-shirts, water bottles, and we recently added stickers to the shop. Use the code podcast at checkout and receive 10% off your first order. There are other ways you can support this podcast as well. You can check those out at hikingthroughlife.net slash support. Also, be sure to sign up for our email list. You can do that by heading over to hikingthroughlife.net. Enter your email address and click subscribe. There's no commitment. You can unsubscribe at any time. As part of our email list, you'll receive our monthly newsletter. We'll also be sending out any promotional codes for Hiking Through Life gear. It's an excellent way to follow Hiking Through Life's journey. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Today we are joined by Jeremy Pendry. Jeremy grew up as a camper and hiker and has been an avid backpacker for almost 20 years. From backpacking in the Sierra Nevada mountains to trekking in Ecuador, he has a diverse trail experience. Along with his wife, they raised two kids with exposure to the outdoors, and the grown kids still love backpacking today. Jeremy recently started a podcast called Trails Worth Hiking, in which he talks with people who have experienced interesting backpacking trail routes all around the world. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So... Before we dive into everything, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your own hiking background and how this all started for you? Yeah, so I grew up, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I grew up just south of San Francisco in a place called Pacifica. It's a little town on the coast. And we had a lot of room to explore as kids, and I spent a lot of time uh, outdoors at the beach or outdoors in the mountains near our house. And I think my my love of the outdoors really stemmed from having that opportunity as a kid and just having the freedom to with my friends and with my brother and my sister to just wander around. And I really spent most of my childhood doing that. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older, went off to college and discovered that there was a sort of more formal way to do this and that there were hiking trails and there were places you could go that were set up for this versus just sort of exploring as a kid. And so um, it was really when I got older that I started doing more of it that way. But I also grew up in a family that had a ton of camping. And so we would go camping every summer. My dad was a school teacher, so we had summers off basically from, from work. And so as a result, we would travel a lot around the Western United States and go camping and go see national parks and, and things like that. 
And when you say you were like exploring so much as a kid going in the mountains and the beaches, was that without adult supervision? Like you and your friends would just kind of go off on your own? Completely. It, it's, it's amazing to me now as someone who has raised kids and seen how helicopter parenting works in the modern era. <laughs> um, to, to think back, you know, being a kid in the 70s and in the 80s, the the adult supervision, at least with my family, was was just sort of, you know, be home by dinner. And so we would go to the beach with our boogie boards and go out into the water with nobody around. Or there was actually this old former railroad track that went along the coast and we used it as a hiking trail. And there were parts where it was pretty worn away. And we would just, you know, go along the cliffs, along the Oceanside Cliffs in Northern California and just explore on our own as kids. Uh, we're up in the hills behind our house. You know, our house was sort of at the end of the road and there were a lot of hills where we could go exploring um, kind of forested areas. And so, yeah, we would pretty much explore without adults around at all. Yeah. And I always love hearing that insight from people who are different generations than me, because like I grew up in the 90s and like there was adult supervision then for a lot of the time. There's sometimes when I was like out exploring on my own, but never too far from home on my own. And it's just the different generations and different times. It's always very similar answers when I hear different generations talking about their childhood experiences in the outdoors. My wife and I, when our kids were young, would encourage them at some, not when they were really young, but when they got to a, I don't know, certain age, we encouraged them to spend more time without us. And eventually they did when they got to be a little bit older. But you know, it was actually hard to convince kids that it was okay to go do these things because uh, it's just nobody really does it that way anymore. And I think there's pluses and minuses. You know, we spent a lot of time with our kids, which I'm sure we'll get into, taking them on more formal hiking trips and backpacking trips and that kind of thing, rather than just sort of letting them run wild. But um, there's certainly some advantages in being able to just explore on your own. And you learn a lot that way. And uh, for me, it really opened my eyes to the possibility of spending a lot of time outdoors. Yeah, you totally do learn a lot that way, especially as a kid, when you're out there on your own, you, you're using all of your senses, using your imagination, using your mind, problem solving on your own. I mean, there's loads of benefits to it. So when you grew up camping, I mean, was backpacking a big part of it or was it just kind of like car camping that your family mainly did? It was car camping primarily. I came from, yeah, my parents weren't really into backpacking. They had done some of it, but it was more about car camping. And I didn't come to backpacking until I was an adult. But one of the things that um, we did when I was a, a kid is we actually had some property. It was empty property with nothing built on it that we owned in, in the mountains in Colorado, in the Rockies. And we spent um, summers, we would go out there. And one summer when I was seven years old, we went out there and we camped on our property for the entire summer. So I wouldn't call this exactly car camping and not exactly backpacking, but it was just sort of where we had this property, there was nobody on it. And we spent the entire summer camping. And as a seven-year-old, you know, I look back on that now as probably the most fun I ever had as a kid was spending that entire summer outdoors in Colorado. Yeah, that's quite the experience because, I mean, I'm sure you learned so much just about like, I mean, did you have to forage for your food? Did you guys have like a cooler that you kept your food in? How did that work? Yeah, it wasn't that wild. I mean, okay. it was. <laughs> let's be honest here. It was between Aspen and Snowmass. So we're talking, you know, areas that were developed, but we were kind of in the 
non-developed part between those two places up on a hillside. And there's a home on the property now that we, you know, we sold the property much later and it's kind of a neighborhood, but it's still a little bit, you know, a little bit rural, a little bit out there. Um, but at the time, yeah, we just had a big cooler in the car. We had two tents. I think we had borrowed one of them and that was the one we slept in. It was a bigger tent. And then we had a smaller tent where we kept all our gear. It was kind of our closet. And then we had one of those little folding toilet seats that you'd go like back into the bushes and dig a hole and put this little pop-up, um, kind of like a stool looking toilet seat. Oh, you guys actually brought one of those instead yes. of just going in the ground. Yeah, it was like a formal <laughs> bathroom where you'd have to move it every week or two, I think, you know. And and my um, because, like I said, my father was a teacher, we had the entire summer and he actually got a job uh, working for the county. So we had a little bit of income for the summer. And he was doing, and it also gave us a place to go take a shower because this county place where he worked had like a, you know, kind of a uh, clubhouse kind of room with showers and bathrooms. And we would go do that. As you might be able to tell from this, my parents were kind of San Francisco hippies from the 60s. So we we had the opportunity to do things in a kind of rough and tumble way. Though I I do have to say that my mom has never been camping since. That was was enough for her. (laughs) The whole summer? Yes, the whole summer. She was done after that? Yeah, she was done. Um, but for me, it really just inspired a sort of lifetime of loving to do those kinds of activities. Yeah. And it's so true that when you have those experiences as a child, that just kind of like lays the groundwork for the rest of your life. Because I grew up camping too, and not camping for entire summers, <laughs> three months <laughs> at a time, but definitely grew up going to state parks and camping. And it's just kind of laid the foundation for me. And clearly you guys have done that for your kids too. So did your wife grow up like outdoorsy and camping as well? Yeah. So she did, but not in the same way for her. It was more, and we had some of this too, but it was more about, you know, both of us came from pretty modest income families so that it was more a way to take a vacation. And for us too, when we would travel out to Colorado, we would camp along the way, not because, you know, my parents had this sort of virtue about camping as much as it was just cheaper. <laughs> and and I think my wife's family uh, grew up doing a lot of the same. They would go, she's from Southern California on the, the coast, and they would go to places like Carpinteria, which is close to Santa Barbara, and there's beach camping. But they would do this because, you know, they weren't a family that was going to spend a lot of money to go stay in a fancy resort along the, the coast somewhere. So they would instead, they would reserve campsites at the state campground, state park campground, and the whole family would come. She's from a very large family, and so they would all come from different places. And we actually still go to Carpinteria every year with her family uh, and camp on the beach there. So it's, it's you know, for her, it was, again, it was more of like a, a way to be able to get out and have a vacation economically. But in the process, you learn to be comfortable in that environment. And and over time, you know, she she loves car camping. And so it's been something that she's stuck with over her life, too. Okay. So when you guys started your family, did you decide that raising them to like enjoy the outdoors was something you for sure wanted to do? Like that was just kind of a no brainer. Yeah. I think it was sort of a natural outgrowth of how we, how we viewed things. Um, I think to be honest, it was in some ways it was more, I, I certainly pushed it as a thing that I really wanted the kids to do. She loved it too, as far as going day hiking and that kind of thing, especially, and especially going car camping but from my end, it was, you know, I was the one who was starting to push backpacking because that was more my love. Yeah. And like reading this article you wrote, you wrote it back in oh, 2000, what was it? 
Yeah. So in 2011, I wrote an article for backpackinglight.com, which is a, you know, a site for lightweight backpacking advice and issues. And yeah, I, the, the article I wrote was about how to sort of balance your desire to really want to go backpacking all the time, which a lot of us who love to backpack want to do with also raising a family and incorporating that into your family life. Yeah. And like, there's so many good points you make in it. Like just some of the points where you're like, um, backpacking, a backpacking trip doesn't need to be long. Like it doesn't have to be like 10 days out in the wilderness. If you have just a weekend, go for a weekend. I think you just said like, take what you can get. Like if that's all you can get, that's fine. And then another point that I really liked was build a career that's conductive to backpacking. Or conducive, yeah. Oh, yeah, conducive. (laughs) (laughs) Conducive to backpacking. I thought that stood out a lot. So what kind of career did you have that allowed that? Well, I, uh, I still do. I guess a little history on that is I moved to Los Angeles for college and for graduate school. And that's where I met my wife. And we... um so we lived in Southern California in Los Angeles for many years. And I was, uh, I'm an attorney and I was working in a big private law firm working really long hours. And it was just in- incredibly difficult to go backpacking. Uh, I would find ways to go for day hikes. I would often get up at five in the morning and drive out to the San Gabriel mountains, Northeast of LA and go for these wonderful hikes out. I mean, this, a lot of people don't realize this, but Los Angeles has some fantastic wilderness very close to it. And a lot of the people who live in LA who can see it from their front porch don't even know it's really there. And so for me, I discovered these wildernesses near my home and I would spend a lot of time going out to them for day hikes, but then I started getting more into backpacking and it was getting, it was just really hard to find the time to do it. And even if I wanted to plan a weekend trip, you know, two night, three day trip with maybe an extra night at the trailhead campground or something like that, it was just really hard to find the time to do it with the work obligations I had. Um, You know, we as a family decided to move for a number of reasons. But uh, for me, one of the things was to transition to a career that allowed me to have more time to do the things I really love to do. Uh, So I ended up, I'm still an attorney, but I work for a government agency now. And so my hours are m- much more regular. The ability to take time off is much um, easier for me to do. And, you know, you have to sacrifice so- something, which is, you know, you get paid a lot in a private law firm. And when you go to the government, it's a little bit less, but honestly, it's still very good. And it just allows me to have a much more balanced schedule in life. And I've been there now working for the government for 15 years because it's given me this uh, ability to do the things I really love. Yeah, I love how you said like a balanced life because ultimately it comes down to what makes you happiest in life and where can you find that balance? And especially like our podcast and just like our journey is all about like finding true happiness in life and how the outdoors has really done that for us. And the outdoors is kind of a way that we balance out life, like my husband and I. So like, yeah, hearing that you were willing to totally kind of shift your career in a way to balance out your life and your love for backpacking is definitely something that I can align with as well. Um, And then also like, yeah, just living where backpacking is easy. Like you said, people don't in LA don't even know like that there's these millions of trails right outside their doorstep, essentially. 
I mean, they look at it and just like looks like a backdrop to a movie almost probably. And it, so, it actually is a backdrop to a movie. <laughs> probably a million movies, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, it's there. I should say there is a really strong community of outdoors people and outdoorsy kind of people who really love to backpack in LA. It's just a smaller percentage of people than it is where I live now. Uh, but I think w one of the other things, it's it's also the logistics within a big metropolitan area that matter too. And so where I live now, I'm in the East San Francisco Bay, kind of as far east as you can be and still commute easily into San Francisco for work. So as a result, I'm an hour closer than, for example, people who live south of San Francisco on the peninsula or in the Silicon Valley area, I'm an hour closer to the mountains than they are. And to me, that makes a big difference in driving time to get to Yosemite or Sequoia National Park or places like that. It's just, it's a huge difference to be able to get in my car from my house than from, for example, where I grew up on the, on the coast. Right. Totally. I mean, if it's just an hour, you can easily like make that a weekend trip. No problem. Well, it's, it's an, I'm an hour closer. It's not an hour. It's, oh, still, okay. it's still probably three hours to Yosemite, but three hours instead of four or four and a half is a big difference in avoiding all the traffic that you can hit in that, you know, cause I'm sort of on the Eastern edge of the Bay area. You avoid a lot of the traffic as well. Oh yeah, 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 all the traffic. I can only imagine San Francisco Bay Area traffic constantly. Well, well these <laughs> days it's not so bad. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true with the quarantine life and the COVID life. Yes. <laughs> um, and then another thing that I really liked was just um, a way to incorporate backpacking lifestyle that you wrote in the article was to practice lightweight, simple living like make less chores to do at home and that gives you more time to backpack. What are some ways that you guys lived and like raised your kids to have a more simplistic lifestyle at home? I think one big thing we made a decision on is when we moved from Los Angeles to here, we actually bought a smaller home than the home we had in Los Angeles, less square feet. So most people don't get their starter home and then go to a smaller home. Um, we did that as just, there's just, you know, less to take care of less furniture to buy, less space to clean, less things to worry about. And so for us, it's really uh, made a difference to, to have a home that's just easier to manage. And so that's one big thing. Another thing is we bought a home, uh, literally a block from where the elementary school is that our kids went to school. And so we didn't have to coordinate complicated shuttles back and forth all the time. And they could just walk down the block and be in school. And that, that made things a lot easier as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So easy walking instead of shuttling. So they don't allow, they don't have a bus system for the schools there. Is that what you meant by that? Yeah. It's just this massive line of cars every day of parents dropping off and picking up. Oh. And there is a bus from the middle school. And that actually was easy for us too. The middle school was a little further than the elementary school. And there was drop off in the morning with carpools with different families. And then in the afternoon, they could take a bus home. And then in high school, once people start driving, it gets easier. You know, kids can get there on their own or find friends who drive before they do. And so overall, it was a it just cut down on all the extra obligations to have, you know, to live in a place where getting to school was really, really easy. Another thing we did is we bought a home that's literally a block from a trailhead to enormous amounts of open space. And so we don't have to often go very far if we want to go hiking, even on the weekends. I literally walk out my front door and I go hiking. Oh, that's so amazing. I, yeah, I wish that I could say the same. I can go on long walks out my door, but to actually be on at a trailhead, I would say I need to drive to a trailhead. So that's quite a gift to give yourself in a living area. 
And I bet a lot of people in California can say that, that there's a trail right outside their door. There, there are a lot of hiking areas in the Bay Area, as I said, a lot in Southern California. I think that's true. It's, it's a place that has a lot of open space, has good weather most of the year, so there's good opportunities to hike pretty much year-round. Although right now we've got smoke everywhere so because of all the forest fires, so it's not a great place right now to go. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like I can't even imagine how that's working out with COVID quarantine and the fires. I mean, if you go outside and it's super awful air right now, right? It's terrible. Yeah. You can't really breathe outside. You can see the ash. It's so big. Oh my gosh. I can't even, yeah, that sounds awful. And are they getting any more managed lately? Some of them have been contained, but there've just been so many. And typically our fire season, our wildfire season is sort of late September and October, and maybe even into November before there's really some heavy rain. But this year it started with a bunch of uh, thunderstorms that had lightning, but no rain that came a few weeks ago. And so as a result, there were just all these lightning fires that started. And the season seems to get longer and longer every year as climate change occurs. And so it's just a a more difficult thing to deal with every year. And do you think that like, I mean, obviously the driving and everybody being out and about was reduced with COVID, but is it just like a huge difference now more so with the fires too? Yeah, I think less people are outside. I mean, I'm, as you can imagine, I want to be outside as much as possible. So even if I can't get into the open space for a hike, I like to go for a walk in the neighborhood, take the dog, that kind of thing. But it just, um, right now it's terrible. You can't really get outside at all. Wow. I have a, I actually have a permit to go hiking Friday in Yosemite with my kids. And it's looking like we're probably going to have to cancel. But uh, fingers crossed that maybe the weather changes and the wind picks up and moves the ash somewhere else. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I suppose a week can change a lot with the fires and the weather there. Yeah, it's not just the amount of places that are on fire. It's sort of what the temperatures are, what the wind is like, all these other weather factors that determine whether the smoke hangs around or not. Wow, yeah. I can't can't imagine that. Luckily, we've never had to deal with that in Minnesota, but oh my gosh, just seeing and hearing the stories out there, it sounds terrible. And you guys just, I mean, it's something that you have to deal with out in California often, but this time it's just like way worse than it's ever been. Every year they seem to say that. Every year it seems to be, this is the worst year we've ever had. And then the next year, no, actually this year is worse. And then, you know, it happens like that over and over. So it is definitely um, becoming a more difficult issue. One of the things that makes it difficult is that for a lot of years, the policy of uh, people who manage the forest was to basically let or suppress fires and let the brush grow. And so when fires happen, it may hit areas where there hasn't been a forest fire in 50 or 60 years. And and the brush has grown much higher and thicker than it would have had natural fires come through on a more regular basis. And the problem that can create is that the fires are much hotter uh, because they're growing, they're burning all this underbrush that may not have been there if it had been a sort of more natural cycle. And as a result, it can actually kill a lot of the trees that can normally withstand a fire if there's less fuel to burn. And so you get these really hot, more intense, more, uh, uh, you know, bigger size, just more of a problem when the fires do happen because they're hitting areas that haven't burned in a long time. Yeah. I was reading about like the redwoods and like a lot of those trees, it sounded like they were able to withstand it. Yeah. The redwoods are built for it and they really, they actually need fire. The redwoods and the sequoias, their close cousins that are in the mountains, they need 
fire for for places for their uh, seeds to germinate and to grow new trees. And so fire is part of the natural cycle for them. And they have very thick bark that can withstand fire, but you can have fires that can kill them if they're, uh, you know, as I said, if they're too hot and there's too much fuel underneath them, it can cause a problem. So I think initial reports, they, especially in the Santa Cruz mountain fire, there has been reports that some of the trees are the trees that people have looked at seem to be okay. So they think it's going to be okay that a lot of the redwoods have survived, but I don't think they're really going to know until the fire is completely out and they can get in there. Right, right. Oh, gosh. So um, going back to like your backpacking with kids and the family, like how at what age did you start going out backpacking with your kids? I took each of them. So I'll say I because the first time it was just me. The second time my wife and it was and our daughter came too. So it was the whole family. So with I took each of them when they were three. So I took my daughter for the first time when she was three years old, just me and her. We went, this is when we lived in Southern California. We went up to the San Gabriel Mountains and she had a little day pack on and a little bottle of water. And we hiked about a mile and a quarter downhill to this campsite that I knew was there. And it was a really nice evening. And then the next morning <laughs> we got up and she put on her pack and she said, I don't want to walk. And we had to go, of course, a mile and a quarter uphill. So the, the next mile and a quarter uphill was me with my backpack and then her on my chest with her backpack, carrying both her and her backpack all the way up the hill, which is something, you know, it's not, it wasn't unexpected. Let's just say that, right? When And that's the kind of thing you have to plan for when they're that age is they could just decide they're not going to walk anymore <laughs> when they're three. Uh, and then our son, we did the same thing when he got to be three and our daughter was then five or six. And... Uh, we went out to Point Reyes. We had by then moved up here in Point Reyes National Seashore is a national park area on the coast here in Northern California with good backpacking. And we took him on about a mile and a quarter hike as well to a, a campsite. So I think people have different tolerances. Some people actually take their kids when they're still in diapers and they don't even walk. And, and that's, you know, people more power to them if they're willing to do that and willing to take that on. Uh, for me, I wanted them to be able to walk the trail themselves, or at least for the most part. And what what I really did and what we did as a family is to just plan trips that they can do and to assess that each year and, and sort of build out from where you started. So the first trip, like I said, one night, mile and a quarter, put to a place that has a pit toilet and a picnic table and maybe a water faucet. And then the next year you go a place that's a little further. And then the next year, maybe you go an extra night. And then maybe you go somewhere where there isn't a picnic table and there isn't a pit toilet. And you just keep building on it like that. And eventually they get there. And, and the key is to really make it something that's enjoyable and not to sort of punish them with long days they can't handle and you know situations that make them uncomfortable. And ultimately you get them, you know, you want to get them to really love the whole thing. And so part of what we would do is get to places early in the day, right? We wouldn't do long hikes that last an entire day, get somewhere by shortly after lunch, you know, to a lake where they can spend a lot of time swimming or something like that. You really have to give them a payoff so that it's a lot of fun for them. Yeah. We were able to do that. And, and, you know, they still both love backpacking and now they're way ahead of me and I sort of straggle behind them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we, eventually we got to the point where they were completely self-sufficient as backpackers and both of them now have gone backpacking without us. So it's great to see that. 
Yeah, I was listening to your podcast with your daughter talking about her backpacking experience in Hawaii, which made me miss. I went to Hawaii like a few years ago and went to the island of Kauai Mm -hmm. um, and didn't do any backpacking because my friend and I were not at all prepared for backpacking. But yeah, it was just like giving me so many memories and making me want to go back there. But um, yeah, I love how you said like, just like make it enjoyable for young kids and like don't push them out of their comfort zone and I think in that article you wrote you even said like have a good meal have one of their favorite meals at camp so they can like remember that and want to do it again because if it's going to be miserable for a child they're they're going to remember that and they're not going to want to come back exactly and this was something that I had to be particularly conscious of because pretty early on in my backpacking career I got into sort of lightweight backpacking and trying to do things not not entirely minimal, minimalist, but in a way that just made it easier for me to enjoy the hiking throughout the day. And you have to be, you have to balance that when you have kids and you're bringing kids. It's nice to not have to make them carry more weight. So lightweight backpacking can certainly help with kids. But like I, like you were just saying, you know, having a good meal, even if that meal takes a lot of extra preparation and a lot of extra space in your pack, that's fine because they're really going to remember that they're going to, they'll want it next time. It'll be something to look forward to in camp. And it's something where they have a stake in it, where they've chosen it, where they've decided, Oh, can we have this? And you want them to have choice over how you're doing things too, over little parts of the trip. You know, I'll often work with them to plan the trip because then it's something they want to do. Right. Right. The more they're part of it, the more they're just involved and want to be part of it and want to go keep going. And yeah, I think that's something um, my husband and I are soon going to be trying to navigate. Like we're, I think I told you in our emails back and forth, we're expecting our first baby pretty much any day now. (laughs) So um, we definitely want to like bring backpacking and hiking and the outdoors into our own children's lives. And we've definitely realized we're going to have to slow down our pace. And eventually, yeah, you'll talk to my husband at some point about his through hike experience on the superior hiking trail. And he can be a little intense about his hikes and his backpacking. And I'm the more laid back, laid back backpacker and I can go slower and I'm fine with that. So <laughs> figuring out um, our kids pace when that time comes is going to be going to be a challenge in itself, I think. <laughs> well, congratulations. Uh, that's exciting that you're going to have your first baby anytime now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And that's, that's great. Yeah. It'll be, it's something that you kind of have to figure out as it happens, right? Like maybe you start with a car camping trip and see how that goes with the kid. And then, you know, maybe you start a little day hike out of a car camping trip. And then maybe after that works out, okay. Then you think about, well, we could go backpacking and I carry everything. And then next time maybe we go backpacking and, and the child carries some of their clothes or something like that. You know, you kind of (laughs) build it one step at a time and, and see how it goes. Yeah. And hearing that you did it alone with your three-year-old, that had to be challenging in itself, like carrying a child in front of you with the, all of your gear on the back. I, that yeah. had to be really hard. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this in the article too. And it sounds like, you know, your husband who loves to do sort of longer, harder hikes, that's, there's room for that when you have a family too, but you just have to um, be conscious of the fact that you know, you're going out and having fun for yourself and that's a big ask of your family. And so you have to be conscious of sort of being there for your family for everything else so that 
you know, that, that that's not inappropriate for you to be doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember reading that in the article. Like it was like, if you're pulling out of your driveway and if you're feeling bad about it, then you shouldn't be going. <laughs> exactly. And there were moments where that happened with me. Um, but there were also times when, you know, my wife was fully on board and said, you know, go have fun. Um, but then when she would ask, you know, for a ladies trip to go somewhere else several months later, I would never argue with her about it. Let her, you know, she wants to do whatever she wants to do. That's fine too. You kind of have to be accommodating on both sides, but the getting the kids sort of up to speed over time is, is definitely the trick to, to making it work for the long term. Yeah. Definitely. And so is um, backpacking something your wife ever did like alone with the kids or was that always you taking the kids out alone? It was always me. Yeah. And so one of the ways that was helpful, I think, was first of all, I could really give them those experiences that I really loved. But it also gave my wife a break from dealing with the kids, right? Like she, she had, it was almost, it was a vacation for her as well, because she would have a weekend where they weren't around and I would just take the kids and I would, I would go places where it made sense to go, you know, go places where the hiking was easier. I, I could only take on so much when I had both of them. And that was when they were a little bit older. When they were younger, I would take them one at a time. I took my daughter and my son many times one at a time when they were young. And that way I, I could manage that. But once they got to be eight or 10 or so, I could take them together. And then you know, there was a moment when they were maybe, I think our daughter was maybe 14 or 15 and our son was maybe 12. I went, took them both on a trip with just me and the two of them. And it was the first time that they were hiking faster than I was. So that was a good sign. And we actually hiked in, this was in the Sierra and we hiked into this lake and it was dark. We went, we were in headlamps cause we didn't get to the trailhead till dinner time. And we were hiking in the middle of the night and I got into this lake and we found an area to set up a tent and I'm working in the dark to set up a tent. <laughs> and I turned behind me and my daughter already had a campfire going. And I thought, I have made it. I am done. My work is done. <laughs> they are ready. <laughs> and so eventually they get there. Um, but yeah, it was always me doing that. It was never my wife doing that. Um, but we also went on a number of family trips. And she's, you know, she enjoys backpacking, but I think sort of three, four days is kind of, you know, after that, she wants a shower. And <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> nice, I can relate to her. <laughs> <laughs> a nice meal, a glass of wine. And I think we'll talk about this with some of the international trekking trips we've done have, have been a nice compromise. I won't say compromise in a bad way, but a nice accommodation for both of us where she gets that out of it. You know, she gets to have all those luxury um, accommodations in a way. I mean, these are still sort of sparse accommodations compared to going to nice hotels and resorts, but it's a, it's a big step up from having to pitch your own tent and dig a hole to go to the bathroom. So you know, that kind of thing, international trekking has given her an opportunity to, to go on big hiking trips and not have to feel like she's, um, you know, giving up on enjoying herself. Yeah, absolutely. And like with the trekking, you get like this whole cultural aspect of it too. And I'm sure you guys got to try some really awesome food when you were in these places as well. Um, so what's one of the most memorable places you've trekked? I know you said you trekked in Ecuador and the Alps. Yeah. So this is something that's been more recent that we've been doing. We have, there's another family that we did a lot of backpacking with for many years because they had kids the same age. And we would go to Yosemite or Sequoia with them and go backpacking. And as a, the kids got older and people wanted to try doing different things, they suggested going to do the Tour de Mont Blanc in Europe. And so we did that. And that was in the Alps. 
And that was our first time doing a big international trekking trip. And that was a few years ago. And then I, I really took to it and I really loved it. And I love the, you know, for the re- a lot of the reasons I've already talked about that it, my wife could enjoy it with me in a way that was a little bit harder on an extended backcountry trip. And so after that, um, we planned a trip a couple of years later to Ecuador as a family and we did a trek there. And then I did a trip with a friend in Nepal without my family. My wife thought that was going to be a little much for her. It was a much longer trip. It was uh, supposed to be a 21 day hike. I think we did it in 18 or 19 days. And it was just, you know, in the Himalayas, it's a pretty tough hike. And um, I think for me, when I look back at, at hiking in Europe, hiking in Ecuador, hiking in Asia, all of them were fantastic in their own way. And I would go back to any of those places. But I think at the end of the day, the place that I wake up in the morning thinking I want to go back to tomorrow is Nepal. It is just a fantastic, it's a hiker's dream. There's just unbelievable, you know, the biggest mountains in the world, huge amounts of different uh, changes in ecosystems because you're going from maybe 3,000 feet to 17,000 feet, depending on the hike you're on. So there's lots of different variety in what you're seeing. And then the aspect you mentioned, the cultural aspect is just amazing. The people there are amazing. There's different ethnic groups in different areas. So you can even be exposed to multiple types of cultures, even within one hike. Uh, for example, the trip I did in Nepal was on, it's called the Manaslu circuit. It's called Manaslu and Sum Valley. It had two parts to it. And there's the Gurung people who are at one elevation, which were really interesting people. And then you get to a different elevation that's Tibetan people and different kinds of villages and different kinds of dress and different kinds of farming and different, you know, things change as you go to different elevations and places. And for me, that was just an amazing uh, experience. I love how like, yeah, the culture changes with the elevation. That's a really cool way to describe it. I've never heard it described that way. Um, So when you go to them, like, are they, are you essentially staying in like little hostels that they have or little huts they have for the trekkers? Yeah, I guess it depends on where you go trekking. But in Nepal, the way they do it is they call them, I think we call them tea houses. For them, it's sort of like a little hostel hotel. That's the way, you know, I think they call them a guest house. We call it a tea house. But essentially, it's a very sparse, very minimalist kind of accommodation where you have a room with two beds. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> there's really, sometimes there's no electricity, depending on where you are. Sometimes there is. And there may not be even a light in the room. Maybe there is. It really depends. There may be nothing. It may be a wall that is literally more like a fence than a wall where you can see through it to the outdoors, or you can see down to the floor below you or above you, or, you know, there's, it's very uh, simple accommodations. But the, for me, you know, that was fine. We, we brought sleeping bags. So we would just throw a sleeping bag on top of the mattress in these little rooms. And the food was what made the difference for me. The, the food in Nepal, I just found to be amazing. I really loved the food. And so to me, it was just that the accommodations were fine and the food was so outstanding that I just enjoyed every tea house that we went to every day. Oh yeah, I can't, um, I bet the food was amazing. And so to like do these treks, is it something that you kind of just like show up at these these little tea houses or is it something people should be booking in advance when they're doing this? So it depends on which trips you do if you're in Nepal. The trip that we did called Manaslu is one that's only been open to the West since the early 90s. And then the part of it, we did a, a trail that or a, a valley called Sum Valley that's in the middle of that hike. You'd take it, you sort of an out and back you do in the middle of that hike. 
and it goes almost to the Tibet border. And then it goes back and then you continue on the Manaslu circuit. That part of, so this whole area hasn't really been open very long. Tsum Valley, I think, has only been open to the West since 2008. And as I said, the other ones since the early 90s. And so the government requires you to have a guide on this particular trek. So you, you have to have at least one certified Nepalese guide with you. And so we had a guide. And because we figured, what the heck, we were in Nepal, we've never done this. My friend and I uh, also had a porter with us. And so we had someone carrying all of our bags except a day pack that we would carry each day. And we had a guide who was um, picking where our accommodations would be each night and picking where which tea houses we would stop in for lunch along the way. And so you don't have to do that in other parts of Nepal. I think a lot of people are familiar with, for example, the Annapurna circuit, which is kind of the most famous trek in Nepal. That and the Everest Base Camp trek are the two most famous. And I think on, on, on Annapurna that we saw the trek we did overlapped with Annapurna at the very end. So we saw some people doing that trek and there were people there without guides and without porters. But for Manaslu, you, you definitely have to have a guide and you know, they're very affordable compared to what you might have to pay in a lot of other places. This is uh, reasonably priced for these kinds of things. And then the trekking in places like Europe and in South America and Ecuador, very different. In Ecuador, it was hostel to hostel, and it was we did. There was no guides. We just did it on our own. Looked up the route, found some online resources, and planned it. And, and in Europe, it's much more sophisticated kind of hiking, <laughs> where you're staying. They call them refuges, and people think of it as a hut to hut hike. But these are really nice. I mean, these are like these beautiful mountain huts. You know, just gorgeous and nice. They they have pretty nice rooms. Some of them can be common rooms where you're grouped with a lot of other people, depends on which one you go to and what you want to spend. Um, but there's also baggage transfer services in a lot of the European treks where you can pay somebody with a van to take your luggage ahead every night. And because a lot of these places have access from roads, not every place on, on the Tour de Mont Blanc, for example, there were a couple of nights where we had to carry our stuff because there, there was no access to a, a van to the hut we were staying in. Yeah. But it's a, you know, the hikes, hiking in Europe is a much more sophisticated way to travel on foot than uh, places that are less developed. You know, because, for example, in Nepal, you are in places where there aren't roads at all, potentially, of any kind. And so the, you are crossing paths with people on the trail who are locals who live there. And this is not a hiking trail. This is, this is their access to their town or their village. And so you are seeing people, for example, carrying huge loads on their back with things that they need to, you know, just things they need for their daily life. You know, for example, one point we saw someone carrying a really high load of stuff on his back and I wasn't sure what it was. And as he walked by, I turned behind me to look and it was baskets of live chickens, which was yeah. surprising to see that somebody's carrying on their back. And so, you know, you, it's a very different kind of experience to be in a place where people are hiking because this is just how you live versus being in somewhere like Europe where it's all recreation when you see people out there. Yeah, and that made me think of, there's a documentary about hiking in the Himalayas and in Nepal and how the the Sherpas there, like really, like they love their job because they really honor the land that they live on. And it's like a gift, it's a huge gift when they can share that with these tourists that are coming there. They just see it as this huge huge honor that they're sharing it and bringing people up to this beautiful mountain range that they have in their land. 
because that's that's where they live and it's their it's their pride and joy. It really and is. Yeah, it really I, is. Yeah, and I'm sure you saw so much of that. And like they probably just shared so many stories of their land with you. It is interesting, though, that sometimes so the guides are often from Kathmandu, the capital or from other rural places. They're not necessarily from the place you're hiking in. It really depends. And so there can be these interesting ethnic um, differences between even the people you're walking with and the people that live there. And they're on great terms with the people that run the tea houses. They, they spend, you know, when you get into a tea house, the, the, the hikers will go and get cleaned up and set up their room and you'll come back out to the main dining area and you'll see the, your guide in the back in the kitchen with the locals drinking rice wine that they've made. And so, you know, they're, you get, they, they really enjoy interacting with the locals, but they may be from a totally different ethnic group. And there's a whole, Nepal is a very diverse country. It's a country, I think of about 29 million people, but I think they have more than 50 ethnic groups. And so people can be from very different backgrounds. It's very diverse. And so even, you know, even the people you're hiking with, for example, our guide was from one ethnic group. Our porter was from a different ethnic group. And all the places we went were different ethnic groups than them. So you know, it's, it's an interesting, uh, phenomenon. Are they all speaking different languages or is it all one language? Uh, so there were two, and this again, depended on where you were. When we were at the lower elevation areas, people were still speaking primarily Nepalese. And that's what people speak in Kathmandu in the capital and, and around most of the country. As we got higher up, um, people speak Tibetan. And so the, the one way for, as a Westerner, the only thing that changed, um, was the greeting that we would give people. So when you're at the, in the areas where people primarily speak Nepalese, you say namaste, which we think of as something you do in yoga, but yes. that's actually just, hello, how are you? So you, everyone you walk by, you say namaste, namaste, and it goes on like that. But when you get to the higher um, altitudes or in elevation areas and the more Tibetan cultural areas, it's a different greeting and I'm gonna mess it up because I've forgotten it, but I think it's Tasi Dele. Uh, and so it's a different, you know, hello, how are you? Because they speak primarily Tibetan, though they do understand Nepalese as well, but it's not their first language. Okay. But yeah, that's kind of cool that there's just like, you you learn the greeting when you're out trekking and then at least there's one way that you can greet people and honor the people that you're trekking with and walking, going, going by and meeting and greeting. Exactly. Um, so do you have any other treks coming up in the near future? Maybe that's, maybe that's not off limits with, with our yeah. world right now, but. <laughs> yeah, it's because of the current situation. I don't have anything in the near future, but we just, with that family that we hiked in, uh, the Alps with in the Tour de Mont Blanc, which was in France, Italy, and Switzerland, that hike goes around that. It's a big loop around that corner where those three countries meet. So you, which is funny too, because you actually see cultural differences between those three countries as you hike in the same loop. Um, but so we don't have any other major treks in the next few months, but we are starting with that family to plan a trek in Scotland uh, next summer with the hope that by then we'll be able to do it. And we may be able to push it off if, you know, if it doesn't, if it's not able to happen, but we're hoping to hike the West Highland way, which is Scotland's most famous trek uh, next summer. And so that'll be with your, your grown children as well. This time we're going to leave them at home. <laughs> just an adult trip yes exactly okay so how old are your kids now our son is 17 almost 18 he'll be 18 in november and our daughter is 20 and she's in college in her third year of college and 
he's a senior in high school. Okay. And both of them go off and do backpacking trips on their own. So as you know, our daughter went to Hawaii with her college friends and did a hike. Our son did his first trip with another, just with another friend uh, about a month ago in the Sierra Nevada in the emigrant wilderness. And so he, it was the first time he had gone without me and without our family or without, you know, somebody guiding the trip. And so he did a three-day trip in, in the mountains with just his friend and it worked out really well. And he, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's been out there enough. And he went to an area that is challenging, but not absurdly challenging where it can, you know, it's something that was doable uh, without creating extra headaches and just being out there and getting used to being out there without someone else. So yeah, it went fine. So now they've both been doing that. And I have a feeling I'm not going to see them very much in the future on my hikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's cool that you raised them like that. And now they're just kind of taking initiative to do it on their own, but it sounds like you still have some trips planned with them. Well, pending all the situations out there, like you said, you were maybe going to go out to Yosemite next week with them? Yeah. So every year for the last several years, my daughter has made it a point to ask me to go on a trip with her. And she said, dad, can we go on a great, you know, can we go do one of these hikes that we've been wanting to do? And so each year we've been doing that. And it's been mostly in September. What we've been doing is planning to go on trips when most kids are back in school, but she's at a university of California. She's at UC Santa Cruz. And the University of California system starts in late September. So there's sort of this gap in the early September where most people are back in school, but she isn't yet. And that's a great time. So we've been going hiking every year for the last several years during that time period. And so she wanted to go do this particular hike in Yosemite. And our son, of course, loves going to Yosemite too. So he wanted to come along. I've actually already done, you know, you asked about future trips and the answer, like I said, is pretty much no, except for this one potential trip in Scotland for international trips. But because of the COVID situation, I've done multiple trips over the last several months here in California, in the Sierra Nevada, and in a different mountain range called the Trinity Alps. So that is something I have been doing a lot of and have done you know, a week-long trip with my son earlier this summer, just the two of us in the Sierra Nevada. Um, but yeah, so we have an upcoming trip planned in Yosemite, but uh, I'm doubting it's going to happen. I think it's most likely not going to happen, but we're going to give it a few more days and see what happens with the smoke situation and make a decision the day before we're supposed to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Keep those fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, that's the thing with COVID, like luckily with places that are close, like you said in your article, like live somewhere where there's backpacking very accessible and close. And you guys totally have that this year in Nevada's. That was actually one of my very first backpacking trips. I did a trip like six years ago with through REI and it was the Sierra Nevada backpacking trip, a three night, four day trip. And that's where I, I learned a lot of basic backpacking mm -hmm. tips and tricks. And yeah, it was challenging, but nothing that I wasn't capable of. Where did you go? Oh, gall. I would need to look up the itinerary again to know the exact location. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a big mountain range. There's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of places to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't recall the, the actual name of the area, but. That is definitely where I spend most of my time backpacking is in the Sierra Nevada. So do you have a favorite area or like, where would you send a first time backpacker in the Sierra Nevadas? A first time backpacker, I would send to one of two places. I would send them to the emigrant wilderness, which is just North of Yosemite. It's, it's a wilderness area just on the Northern Yosemite border or Desolation Wilderness, which is just on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. 
It's kind of off behind Lake Tahoe on the West shore. Both of those are great because they are accessible. They're hard and rewarding, but not too hard. And they're very close to civilization so that you, you know, emigrant less so, but at least in desolation, if you need to bail out, if something happens, you, you always, you can always head downhill and end up somewhere near Lake Tahoe. Uh, and in the emigrant wilderness, I just feel like it's, it's kind of a gentle wilderness compared to Yosemite, which has a much more severe up and down throughout Yosemite. So that's where I would send first time backpackers. And I lead a lot of trips informally for friends and other people who want to go. People are always asking me to take them. And often I will go to emigrant or desolation if people don't have a lot of experience. Okay. And is there like a best time of year to be going in the Sierra Nevadas? Yes, absolutely. Summer to late summer to early fall. So June is a little early for a lot of places there. There can be either still a lot of snow or heavy mosquitoes if the snow is already gone. So June is not great, although I've done June trips, but they're a little bit more adventurous because you you have to deal with those elements, sometimes particularly, you know, snow covering the trails or lakes that are partly frozen or things like that. But July through September is probably the best time. July, you're definitely going to have to scout where you're going and make sure that the, tr- the passes are clear from snow or clear enough and uh, that mosquitoes aren't horrible or if they are, that you're prepared for them. There are a lot of people you hear about going places where they're not really prepared for these things and it can make a miserable trip if you're not expecting it. But I think the really, you know, August is sort of the sweet spot where the snow is melted enough. Mosquitoes are gone from most places, although if it's a heavy snow year, that's not necessarily the case. You know, so that can be a great time. September also can be great. It's a little drier in September, though, because you've a lot of the sort of seasonal streams may have dried up by then, but still fantastic. You're going to have less wildflowers and that sort of thing, but definitely still a good time to go. And you get to October, you're starting to push it and it's going to get really cold at night sometimes. And you really need to be checking the weather because you can get blasted by a huge storm. And, you know, people have had to get evacuated when snow comes in heavy and early October, for example. So you you have to keep an eye on those kinds of things when you get to the shoulders of it. But really, it's sort of July through September is the, the high season for backpacking in the Sierra. Yeah. So like the snow, like it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of like no snow time. Like you said, there's snow until even June and then it already comes in October. Yeah. Yeah. The Sierra has pretty high altitude, right? So you've got some of the, for example, Mount Whitney, the tallest peak in the lower 48 is in the Sierra Nevada. There's a number of 14ers there. So there's a lot of your high altitude, especially in the Southern Sierra, the, the, the range goes from a little bit lower to a little bit higher as you go South. So a lot of the hiking in the Southeastern Sierra in particular is really high altitude, at least for, for the United States. And because of that, there can be snow that lingers around pretty late in the season. Uh, passes can be impacted. A lot of times you have to go over some pretty tall passes in the Sierra and there can be snow pretty much all the way through June, sometimes through parts of July. It really just depends. It's not a deal breaker when there's snow, right? If it's just up on a pass and you can see where people have been walking through, you may be able to get through fine, but it's just something, you know, and I've had to do that numerous times, but it's just something to be aware of as someone who may have less experience or or is not sure about that kind of environment. You have to plan for it. Uh, But yeah, it is a fairly short season. Thankfully, in California, there's a lot of other opportunities to backpack instead of the Sierra. For example, there's a place called the Trinity Alps, which is close to Oregon. It's kind of on the northern, northwestern part of California. Uh, And it's a really 
beautiful place. It also gets a lot of snow, but it, I find that it's clear by June typically because it's more coastal and it's a little bit lower in elevation. And there's almost no mosquitoes for some reason there. It's very few compared to the Sierra. So every June, I pretty much go to the Trinity Alps because it's a good way to get in an early season hike and get ready for the Sierra. And my son and I did that. We had this one week trip this, that we did this summer in Sequoia and Kings Canyon. And we went to the Trinity Alps a few weeks before and did a three-day trip there to kind of get our gear dialed in and get our trail legs ready. Yeah, always got to work up those trail legs before you do yes. the longer treks. There's more local stuff too, you know, around the rest of the year. There's an April, March, there's a lot of hiking you can do closer to home. So there's there's a lot of other backpacking opportunities along the coast, like in Big Sur or in Point Reyes or places like that as well. Yeah, Big Sur, that's another place we went a couple of years ago and we did this awesome hike called Cone Peak. Yeah, yeah. My daughter was talking about doing that hike recently, but they've had fires there now too. So I think she's not going to be able to do that. Oh man. Yeah. Big Sur is definitely, yeah, that's a place I'd go back to in a heartbeat. Really beautiful there. And the Sierra Nevadas. Yeah. Cause I was only there like a few nights and I do remember like the weather was great. I was there in August, so it was perfect weather and we didn't, yeah, didn't have any issues with storms or any crazy, obviously no snow or anything. So it's a pretty dry mountain range for the most part. So you get, you know, when it's not snow season, there are thunderstorms. I've been caught in bad hailstorms, for example, but they usually pass fairly quickly. And overall, the weather there is pretty fantastic. So when you go out on these, are you, do you bring a, like a GPS with you at all? I don't. I don't. I'm, I just bring my phone and I often have downloaded the route so that I can, you can use the GPS on your phone still, even if you obviously you don't have cell coverage. So you can Make sure you know where you are if for some reason you get lost. But I kind of I know where I'm going there. I've I've got a good map always. There's a, a company called Tom Harrison Maps that's kind of a local California company that makes really great recreation maps for uh, the Sierra Nevada. And I always pretty much have one of those for whatever region I'm in. Uh, and the phone is a backup in case I can't figure out where I am. But for the most part you can, and you run into people often enough where you can figure it out if there's some issue. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't bring a Garmin, uh, but it's something that my wife probably would like that me to do. So <laughs> maybe I should. Yeah. Well, um, when my husband and I went to Jasper backpacking, we went there, um, three years ago. And that's when I was like, we need a Garmin. Like we're going really deep in the wilderness. I, I need a Garmin. So somebody knows we're out here safe. <laughs> Yeah. It was funny. My son went on that trip with his friend about a month ago or whenever that was. He he went and we just, I knew what his route was. I knew when to expect him home. And then we found out after the trip that his, the other kid's aunt had given him a Garmin so that she knew where he was at all times. And I didn't even know that, that he was able to communicate with his aunt. So he wasn't, you know, completely out of touch as I had thought, but I didn't even know until they got back that, that they were being watched. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. But yeah, I mean, if it's something that like you guys just have never had, then it's obviously not a concern that you want like your kids to have one either, huh? Yeah, I may be going forward. It's something to think about, though. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, like that that peace of mind. And like when my husband did his through hike, like every night he, when he would like get to his campsite, he would just like send me a message. So I'd be like, OK, he got there safely. We're good. Yeah. That's it is nice to be able to do that. When I was in Nepal, I was we didn't have Wi-Fi every day, but we did have it every few days. Some of these tea houses would have solar panels 
and they had Wi-Fi. And so they'd, even if they didn't have regular power, they could have Wi-Fi. And I would send a WhatsApp, you know, photo and text or something and uh, to my family every few days. So they knew where I kind of, where I was on the trail and that I was still on track. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, it's nice, so nice to be disconnected from technology and the world when you're out having these experiences, but yes, it's also nice to let people know you're, you're safe, you're having a good time and just like give people back home a peace of mind. Except I always felt like they would respond and they would want to talk to me and they were always like, oh, you're having fun. We'll talk to you when you get home. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that That's the good response then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about your podcast. When did you start that? I started the podcast a few months ago in July. It was the first time I published an episode. And what kind of sparked your interest in doing this podcast? I know a lot of your episodes, you give some pretty rich history about the trails and talk to people who are pretty experienced in those areas. Um, is like the history of the areas and trails something that's always been of high interest to you? Yeah, I, it's funny. You know, you the way you do these things sometimes is you look for something that you would want to, to listen to. And if you don't find it, you realize, well, maybe I could do that. And what I thought was missing from a lot of the podcasts that were out there was that historical part, was the sort of cultural history, geology, all the things around an area. A sense of place is really what I thought was missing from a lot of the podcasts that I saw, or I'm sorry, podcasts that I listened to, I should say. But the ones that were out there would focus on gear, or they would focus on through hiking, or they would focus on you know, even some that just focus on trails, but more of the technical aspects of the trails, or you know, backpacking issues more generally. And for me, what I really love doing is I love hiking a trail from end to end. And I really love knowing as much as I can about where I am and having a good sense of that place. And a lot of the people who, who would write detailed trip reports or how to hike a particular trail reports would have immense amount of detail, every twist and turn in the trail and every possible campsite and all of this kind of stuff but nothing about the place, nothing about, well, where is this? And why is this trail even there? And who, who lives in this area? Or if it's in a protected space, how did this space become a national park or a protected space? And so for me, those things are really interesting. Another thing that I thought was sort of missing was trying to bring together the trekking and backpacking communities. There really are people who do both, but I find that there are a lot of situations where people I meet have done one or the other, and they have no interest in the other one. So a lot of backpackers have this view of backpacking as sort of a pure wilderness experience. And they think trekking is sort of, you know, like a step down if they're gonna stay in accommodations. <laughs> and a lot of trekkers, I think, have the opposite view where backpacking seems a little extreme to them and a little uncomfortable. And I do meet people that do both, and I'm one of those people, but I wanted to be able to have a show that would focus on both things and sort of bring together people who who might be into one or the other, but are a little bit curious about the other opportunity. Yeah, I find that like really unique because there's so many backpacking podcasts out there. And like you said, gear podcasts and just stories about through hikers. I mean, there's loads of through hiking podcasts, but as far as the trekking aspect of it, I think that's a pretty unique piece to it. I don't come across a lot of podcasts about that whole aspect of it. So um, yeah, I really appreciate your, appreciate your podcast in that sense. And the whole history of the areas, I mean, that is always so huge as to how that trail got there, who built the trail, when did it come about? I mean, the whole getting trail systems in is a whole other story. And that takes a lot of 
policy and just a lot of time to get trails built. Yeah, or just to protect these spaces. You know, there were sometimes decades and decades to make something a national park or make it a place where you could have a trail like this. And people take it for granted that the trail's just there. And so I think it's important to, to shine some light on the conservation history of these areas as well. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, you've mentioned that a lot of podcasts focus on through hikes. And I was actually surprised when I looked for backpacking podcasts, how many of them were about through hiking, which is such a small percentage of people who go backpacking, especially the bigger through hikes. We all would love to do them someday, but they're, they're very hard for most people to do. And so part of what I wanted to focus on in this podcast also is hikes that ordinary people with a job and a family can actually do. And that means anywhere from, you know, an overnight on a weekend all the way up to two to three weeks, which might be a long vacation time away from work. But I don't, I'm, I don't plan to focus on hikes longer than that. There may be times where I squeeze in, you know, a bigger trail that's slightly bigger than that. But for the, for the most part, I plan to focus on trails that any one of us could do. Right. Absolutely. Because yeah, like you said, not everybody has that much time to go on a through hike. It takes a lot of planning and time. You have to essentially quit your job to go do a long through hike. But yeah, backpacking is a very accessible thing that people can do on a weekend. Exactly. And for some people, that's exactly what their comfort zone is. And that's where you have to start just a two night backpacking trip and get your feet wet and get comfortable in it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, the through hike my husband did was it was three weeks long, but there's so many sections like we do that trail on weekends and like it's a super easy section hike too that you can just go for a weekend trip and it's awesome. And that's the superior hiking trail, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I was I'm excited to talk to him about that. And that and that would be sort of on the longer end of a hike that I think most people could do. And it's but that is one that most people can do and still go back to their job and their family won't disown them because they've been gone for too long. Right. You know, so it's it's kind of on the edge of what's possible for most people. And I think that's great. And I want to cover those hikes as well as hikes that are shorter, maybe two to three day hikes is, or and anywhere in between. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's he's excited to talk to you about that. He's definitely into like t technical trail talk as well. So he'll be really good, good. for that. <laughs> yeah, because I can do all the history stuff and record that separately and then talk to him more about how to hike the trail. Yeah, 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 yeah. He'll, he'll look forward to that. Yeah, so is there any... Uh, Anything else we didn't touch on that you would like to add about backpacking or your hiking background or hiking with families? No, I think we've covered most of it. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about all this. And I hope people give my podcast a chance and check it out. It's called Trails Worth Hiking, and you can find it anywhere you can find podcasts, including this one. So, um, And if people have trails that they've hiked that they think are fantastic and think would make good trails to talk about on the show, I'd love to hear from them they can email me at trailsworthhiking at gmail. Perfect. And you have a website as well, right? It's a website through the hosting service through Buzzsprout. So it's, yeah, if you look up trailsworthhiking Buzzsprout, I don't even know the exact URL because it's, you know, the easiest way to get to the podcast is basically through any podcast app. Yep. Yep. And we'll put that in the show notes, the website as well. Yeah. And we've got, we've got some great episodes coming up. As you mentioned, I covered one in Hawaii, the Kalalau Trail, also covered the High Sierra Trail, covered the trek in Ecuador. And coming up, we've got an episode on Joshua Tree National Park, uh, which is an interesting kind of hike. You know, it's out in the desert in Southern California, which is one that a lot of people haven't done. And then also a, a trip in the Ruby Mountains in Nevada, which is a, a really neat place to go hiking as well. So those are both coming up soon. Awesome. We'll look forward to hearing those ones. And hopefully people will go over and check out your podcast. 
Cause like I said, it's a really unique one. So thanks so much for coming on today. This has been awesome. All right. Thank you, Sarah. We've loved doing this podcasting journey. We love bringing awesome guests on. We love seeing that people are listening. And we're really, really grateful that this is hopefully inspiring other people to get outdoors. Yeah, and as part of our mission at Hiking Through Life, we really want to help support others in continuing their journey or starting their journey into the outdoors. So as part of that, we have plans for future episodes to address some listener feedback. So if you have questions about backpacking, hiking, adventuring outdoors, let us know. Email hikingthroughlife at gmail.com and submit us your question or topic and we'll possibly address it in a future episode. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.